Welcome to This One Life. Today on the show, Stefan Guillenay. Stefan spent 11 years in the neuroscience research world studying neurodegenerative disease and the neuroscience of body fatness. His book, The Hungry Brain, was named one of the best books of the year by Publishers Weekly and called Essential by the New York Times Book Review. He is the founder and director of Red Pen Reviews, a nonprofit that publishes free expert reviews of popular nutrition books. This is part two of my conversation with Stefan. We'll dive into the hungry brain, outsmarting the instincts that make us overeat. Why discipline and willpower are overrated when it comes to becoming lean and strong. How the ancient wires in our brain trick us into overeating and sabotaging our fitness plans and the powerful strategies to achieve your fitness goals that actually work. This was so enlightening. Enjoy. Stefan, you wrote a book called The Hungry Brain, Outsmarting the Instincts That Make Us Overeat. And in your book, you argue that obesity and our food choices are driven by ancient brain structures that have developed in a world that has not so much to do anything to do anymore with our current society of abundance. And that gives us problems because that's a topic that I really like and that I heavily rely on. So discipline and willpower. Let's start with that side. What's the role of discipline and willpower in your findings? Yeah, I think they are not irrelevant, but I don't think that they are the primary determinant of our typical eating behavior and body weight, at least for the average person. If you think about what hunger is, for example, hunger is not something that we choose to experience, right? It's just something that arises as a result of brain processes that are not under our control. And craving would be another example. We don't decide that we want to experience a craving. That's just something that arises. And the brain processes that underlie these are actually quite complex. And I won't get into that right now. Um, but just to understand that what you experience is like the tip of the iceberg of the brain processes that are happening that underlie these things. And these are powerful motivators, right? If you're feeling really hungry, you don't have to eat. You could use willpower and you could say, I'm not going to eat right now, but that will be difficult, right? Um, it's like being thirsty and not drinking would be a good analogy for people who might not experience strong hunger a lot. So you can resist that for sure for a few hours. You can resist it for a day probably. Can you resist it for a week? Can you resist it for a month? Can you resist it for the rest of your life? And the answer for most people is no. And I think there are some heroes out there who can, there are people who can just grind it out with willpower every day and not give in to those impulses. But most of us is just not realistic to expect us to do that. And I don't think these brain systems evolved to be constantly overridden by higher level conscious rational systems. These are like survival circuits and it's like a fire alarm going off. It's hard to go through your life with the fire alarm going off all the time. And willpower absolutely does matter. And 
I think it's best used in small doses to design the right environment for yourself. So like when you're at the grocery store, choosing which foods you're going to buy, when you're thinking about what foods are going to be visible in your personal environment, what foods are going to be in your fridge, things like that. I think that's where a little bit of willpower really goes a long way. But I think expecting yourself to be able to, on a moment to moment, meal to meal basis, not satisfy your basic urges and use willpower to override those. I think for most people, that's not realistic. How do you, on a very high level, then explain the differences between people when it comes to their level of fitness, how they eat, how healthy their weight is? Is that because people's brain structures are slightly different or it's different how these brain structures are triggered because of environment and what those people do? Is it a combination of both? So how's, how do you describe the variety between people? Yeah, this is a big topic. So I'm going to try to narrow it down a little bit. And I'm going to start with a really brief overview of the genetics of obesity. So if you look at the percent of differences in body fatness between people that are explained by genetic differences between people. So how much do genes account for why some people are fatter than others? It's about 75% is genetic. A lot, so there are very strong genetic influences on body fatness. And if you look at what these genes are that are differing between people that are causing some people to to be fatter than others, they're primarily genes that relate to brain structure, brain development, and brain activity. So it's these are overwhelmingly genes that are related to the brain. So basically what that suggests is that the primary reason why some people are fatter than others in the modern environment is because of how our brains are constructed and how our brains operate. So that's the kind of foundation. And then we can ask, what exactly is it about our brains that are different. And <clears throat> there we have less detailed information, but some people, I think there are many differences between individuals that can explain this or contribute to it. Some people have naturally higher appetite. So their energy regulating systems in their brain that decide how much energy they wanna bring in just have a higher setting. They wanna bring in more energy, they have a higher appetite. So they have more motivation to eat. It takes more, might take more food to make them feel full, for example. And, and then also people have different levels of food reward responsiveness. So what that means is that when you have something in front of you that's really seductive, something that really tempts you, how strong is that temptation? And how hard is that gonna drive your behavior to obtain that food and to eat that food. So that varies widely between people. Leonard Epstein's research, for example, he puts people in these experimental settings where he basically measures how hard are people willing to work for a seductive food, for a little bit of soda or a piece of candy bar. Some people just aren't willing to work very hard for that. They just don't really care intrinsically their intrinsic motivation for those types of foods is super low other people will do extraordinary amounts of work to obtain these seductive foods 
And so people have different levels of intrinsic motivation to eat these seductive dopamine stimulating foods. So there's on one side, we have the hunger piece. On the other side, we have the seductiveness food reward piece. Those are different brain systems, but those are, I think, two of the key systems that are determining what our calorie intake is and which is probably the number one determinant of where our weight is sitting. You said so many things where I'd love to ask some questions. Uh, please allow me to ask a, a bigger, more segmented question around what you said. So the 75% um, of how fat one person is versus the other is determined by your genes. That sounds like a lot. If you wouldn't be the founder of Red Pen Reviews, who puts uh, scientific accuracy at the very forefront of everything, <laughs> that, that I would have had two raised eyebrows around that. But okay, so 75%. So how can you find something like that out? So how, how would you, on a very high level, how could you come, what's the methodology to come to such a con conclusion? And the second part of the question is, what does that actually mean? If my genes are on the very high end of, of this chance to get fat, how much can I then affect that both by willpower and, and discipline and likely by other strategies that you said, because the original emotional anti-reaction that I had against what you said was that my identity is very much centered <laughs> around everyone is being in the driver's seat of their life. And if it's not willpower, if it's not discipline, but if 75% of that outcome when it comes to how fat am I is, is preconditions by genes, is that still the case? Am I still in the driver's seat? Yeah. Or do I just have to think about this in a way, hey, wait a moment, everyone is born with a, with different prerequisites, just like everyone is born, many, but you're born in different countries. And basically where you are born is the, this <laughs> biggest single prerequisite of how well you're going to do in life. Um, but still you're on the driver's seat and a person with bad prerequisites can still outperform one with good prerequisites and somebody with good prerequisites can fuck it up. Summarizing this very long question, how <laughs> what's the methodology to come to such a claim and what does yeah. it mean if if my genes are really very high on that risk to yeah. be fat. So I'm glad that I'm glad to have the opportunity to expand on this answer. There are different ways to measure what's called the heritability of body mass index. So body mass index measure of body fatness. That's the most common one that's used in these genetic studies. Heritability just means what percent of it is explained by genetic differences between people. And the figure that I gave you from is from a study design called twin studies. So what they do is, so we know that identical twins are genetically almost identical, right? And we know that fraternal twins, meaning non-identical twins are not genetically identical. They share about half their genes. And so if you know the amount, if you know the difference between those two, you can say, you can measure how different their fatness is between those two. So those are both scenarios where the children were incubated in the same womb, right? And they came out of the same mother, but in one case they were genetically identical and the other they were not. So you know the, the genetic difference. So then you can measure what was the difference in body fatness and you can say, how does the difference in body fatness vary with that known genetic distance? And that gives you an estimate of um, heritability. And the 75% figure that I gave you is from a meta-analysis study of studies 
of twin studies. And so that 75% represents many twin studies that have been done on the heritability of body mass index. That said, there are different ways of measuring it and different ways do give different numbers. There's another way of doing it called family study. It's not quite as airtight of a study design, but those give lower numbers in the 40s, typically, 40% of body mass index. And then there are other ways that mostly give lower figures than the 75% figure. So there is a range, depending on what you want to believe, which source of evidence you want to believe, it could be anywhere between 40 to 80%. Most experts think that the twin study design is a little cleaner. Most tend to focus on the twin study findings as higher numbers, but there is still ongoing debate about which one is accurate. That said, I don't think it's really that important whether we choose the 75% or 45%, because in either case, genetics is really important. And I think this should be obvious. Like, I think, I think we, it's not hard to see that some people struggle with their weight more than others. It's not hard to see that some people don't have to do anything to maintain a lean weight and they eat whatever they want and they're still lean. And then other people really put a lot of effort into it and they're struggling with weight gain. Yeah, just the question on these examples that I always have and that are so difficult to figure out is how much is the environment? Likely that yeah. was being controlled for in those twin studies. But if you have the one person that is seemingly be able to eat everything and the other person that is struggling, if they would have, if you would swap the environment that they have grown up from the very first day, would that still be the exactly same case? It depends on what you mean. So if you're swapping the environment within typical ranges of variation. So from one typical family to another, it's not going to make a lot of difference because we also have adoption studies where they're looking at twins where one was adopted into a different family. The family environment makes much less difference than the genetics. So the genetics is mostly what's determining not only how fat they are, but where that fat is accumulating on their bodies. Is it in the gut? Is it under the skin? Is it on the butt? Is it on, in, on, on the belly, et cetera? And so that said, I think a really important thing to understand here, which I think will be helpful to address some of the concerns that you're having with this, is that these studies represent the amount that genetics is contributing within the typical environment that was studied. So this is not saying that if you eat a diet that's completely different than how the average person eats and you're highly physically active, that there's nothing you can do to affect your body fatness. These studies are done in a context where almost everyone is eating a fairly unhealthy diet by my standards and living a fairly unhealthy lifestyle. So not a lot of physical activity, eating foods that are not very healthy, that tend to promote overconsumption. And so if just to push it to an extreme, if everyone's eating the exact same crappy diet and doing no physical activity, the genetic contribution is going to be 100% because there's no variability in the environment, right? And in that context, the genetics would be 100%. Whereas if everyone's doing radically different things, the genetic component might be 10% and the environment would be 90%. It depends 
the share of variation from genes versus environment depends on how much the environment is varying between individuals. And I think this helps explain why our genes haven't really changed that much, yet we have much more obesity today than we used to be. How do you explain that if it's mostly genetic, right? The answer is our environment has changed tremendously, right? And so the studies that are done in one specific environmental context don't really tell you what would happen if you go outside of that environmental context. In other words, if you decide I'm gonna be really healthy and eat a diet that's a lot healthier than most people, I'm gonna focus on my diet, I'm gonna focus on my physical activity, you're not in the typical environment anymore. You've created a new environment for yourself that is a radical departure from how most people eat, hopefully in a positive direction. And so, all that is to say that these studies do not mean that environment is not important. They don't actually tell us very much about how far we can get by modifying our diet and modifying our lifestyle. But I think what they do say, I think they do support the common sense conclusion that some people have to work a lot harder than others to maintain a healthy body weight. I can very well live with that conclusion based on your insights. And with that knowledge in mind, what are practical strategies and or guidelines to help people to eat better, not relying so much on discipline and willpower? Yeah. So the thesis of my book is that we have these brain regions that evolve to perform certain functions in an ancestral environment, and we have a mismatch with our current environment. So these systems that tried to get our ancestors to eat enough of certain types of food. Now we have too much of those and they're just pushing us too hard to eat those things. And so the general framework that I come from is how can we work with these systems? How can we satisfy these systems in a way where they are getting what they want? They're getting what they evolved to seek. And yet they're we're recruiting them to guide us to a healthy intake instead of battling them all the time. Because if you're constantly battling these survival circuits in your brain, for most people, that's going to eventually be a losing battle. You have to recruit these systems if you want long-term sustainability, I think, for most people. And so how do we do that? I think there are, there are a couple of go-tos that I have that I think are, are pretty simple and actionable. And one of them is to, is to control your food environment. Your brain, especially these parts of your brain that motivate you to have cravings and releasing dopamine, creating an urge to eat very tasty food, these systems are triggered by sensory cues in our environment. So the same way that if you're trying to quit smoking, you don't leave a pack of cigarettes on the table. If you're trying not to eat unhealthy food, you don't leave those on the table in a place where you can see them, where they're easy to access. You don't allow yourself to the extent that you can, you don't allow yourself to be exposed to food advertising on computer, on TV, billboards. You don't walk by that bakery that's super tempting on your, your walk home from work, um, et cetera. Just food cues that trigger your brain to start releasing dopamine and motivate you to have this craving and to get these foods that are usually not supporting your goals. So that's the first thing. And two tips for that are one, you control the cues, visual cues, the smell cues, and two, you create effort barriers. 
So foods that you don't want to eat or foods that you don't want to eat at uh, a particular time, like between meals, make little effort barriers. So put it on a high shelf, put a screw top lid on it, have the foods that are available be like nuts in shells or an orange that you have to peel, where let's say if you're actually genuinely hungry, you can still eat that, but you're going to have to do a little bit of work for it. And you're probably not going to do that if you're just bored or you just glance at it or something. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to work with satiety or fullness. So these brain systems that regulate satiety, they live in your brainstem and they respond to cues that are coming up from your digestive tract. So your digestive tract measures tons of different things about what you ate, the volume of it, the carbohydrate, the fat, the protein, all kinds of chemical composition information is going up your vagus nerve primarily to your brainstem. And that's getting integrated. And, you, and then your brainstem uses all that information to say, to say how full you feel. And then you receive that signal consciously. And then once you reach a certain fullness threshold, you say, okay, I've had enough and I'm going to stop my meal. But the thing to understand about this system, a couple things. One is that is what most people intuitively use to determine their meal size. So when you hit that point of feeling full, that's when most people say, okay, I'm done with this meal. I'm going to do something else. And so at what point do you hit that? Do you hit it after you ate 500 calories? Do you hit it after you ate 2000 calories? It turns out your brainstem actually that, that sensation is not just about how many calories you ate. It's actually modified by a lot of different things in the foods that you eat. And so if you can eat foods that give you more satiety per calorie, you can hit that point of satisfaction having eaten many fewer calories. So you are satisfied, you do feel full, but you still ate fewer calories. And the way you do that is by eating foods that are lower in calorie density, so fewer calories per gram. So those tend to be foods that have more water and or fiber in them. So one example I like to use is the difference between a bowl of oatmeal and crackers. The difference there that accounts for the difference in calorie density is water. And you're gonna be a lot more full on the same number of oatmeal same number of calories of oatmeal than you would with the crackers. The oatmeal is expanding your stomach more for the same number of calories. And then protein, of course, is one that I think a lot of people understand. Higher protein increases satiety per calorie. Fiber increases satiety per calorie. And then palatability or how good something tastes decreases satiety per calories. Obviously, we don't want to just eat disgusting foods. I don't think that's anybody's plan, but I think if you can avoid those foods that are really super, super delicious to you, you're going to get more mileage out of, out of the foods that you're eating in terms of satiety. I like this idea about the satiety. I have extensive experience both through Fuletics and personally in gaining weight to increase muscle mass and in losing weight to to build definition and throughout all these phases 
I never feel hungry because I know how to manage satiety. My favorite example is always instead of eating that Big Mac, which will give me 700, 800 calories or something like that, and I'm still going to want to eat more. If I have the same amount of calories in a bowl with peas and kidney beans and cucumber and some salad and put some protein on top, that's such a huge bowl. I'm going to be occupied for 45 minutes to eat that. And afterwards, <laughs> there's nothing that's going to go in anymore. Just the idea of that you could have such a huge bowl three times per day, still lose weight and feel satiated. It gives you like a mental compass as of feeling hunger in your diet is a killer, is a, is a no. Yeah. And I think you don't want to be feeling hunger because that is a really powerful force to be having to fight against. And also if you go on a, that's the issue also about the word diet. If you go on a diet and you feel miserable and hungry, maybe through willpower and discipline, you might be able to force yourself through this. Maybe even for the time you've set to do, if you're very lucky, but afterwards you're going to go back to what to the same lifestyle that that puts you on the track to be fat so you need to find something that you can sustainably do for some time and don't hate your life with that as we're nearing the end stefan i would love to ask you a couple of finisher questions number one what does happiness mean for you what does happiness mean wow that's a big question i think that Boy, I guess it means two things. One is like the moment-to-moment -moment feeling of like how good do I emotionally feel right now? And then the other one is satisfaction with my life. If I think about it, is my life going how I want it to be? If you could live your life again, what would you wish you would have fully understood at the age of 20? I think I would... The first thing that comes to mind for me is have a deeper understanding of meditation and the techniques that are most effective for me now. And I would love to give that to myself when I was 20. Where should listeners go to learn more about you or your work? Yeah, so redpenreviews.org. That's the place where we post reviews of health and nutrition books, expert reviews. I would encourage people to go there if you're interested in learning more about the work that we do. I'm most active on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at S-G-U-Y-E-N-E-T. I also have a website that I'm not as active on right now, which is stephanguiennet.com. We will put those links into the show notes. Stefan, thanks a lot for being on the show. Really appreciate you taking the time and I enjoyed the conversation a lot. Okay, thank you, Daniel. I enjoyed it too. This was part two of my conversation with Stefan. In part one, we discuss why you need to be very careful believing the claims even in the most popular, seemingly highly scientific health and fitness books. From the most surprising examples of misinformation, to the shocking answer to the question of what percent of literature is actually scientifically accurate, to the unbelievable reasons why authors publish wrong statements, and how you can better assess the quality of a source. If you don't want to fall for bullshit, listen to this episode.